You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to be starting at verse 11, and we're going to be going through chapter 6, verse 3 today. So Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3. <clears throat> and as you turn there, let's say it with me. You should be knowing it by now. We want to know Jesus better. We want to love Jesus more. We want to serve Jesus while we're tackling some tough topics through this book so that at the end of this, this series, we can say that we're doing these three things better. Um, I don't know if you can tell it today or not, but I've got some new um, dress shoes on, and they are steel-toed dress shoes. I hope you have yours on as well. They're not, actually. But we're going to be talking today out of this passage, dealing with issues of spiritual immaturity and maturity. And I just want you to know one thing. Uh, No preacher worth his salt delivers a message on Sunday morning that doesn't hit him first through the week. And so today, as we're challenged by some of these truths, I want you to know that I have myself dealt with things this week and being challenged by going through this. We have a cultural and social expectation that people should grow up, don't we? That an infant should become a child, that a child should become a teenager, that a teenager should become a young adult, that a young adult should become a a, a maturing adult and contributing to the needs of society and moving on from childish ways and so on and so forth. We have that in our culture and society. I submit to you that we do not have that same expectation at all times in the church. That sometimes we look at folks who may have been Christian 10, 15, 20 years and who are still dealing with issues of immaturity, still dealing with what the Scripture is going to talk about today as just being very elementary, basic understandings that they should have long moved away from, and we just pat their back gently and we just go, oh, it's okay, honey. It's all right. Somebody's probably just not teaching you well enough. Or maybe maybe you have some other issue in your life that just is keeping you from that. It's okay, And listen, I'm all about grace and mercy for people. But it is a sad indictment when we have greater expectations on people to mature culturally and socially than we do within the church. And so this is a passage about what that looks like, about moving on from infant childish ways and moving on to deeper understandings of what it means to be a Christian. Now, you say, well, how, how, how can you say this? How can you say that we have this issue in the church? Well, I'll just give you an example or two. I've now been preaching uh, or, or been in some ministry position for 21-plus years in three different churches now, plus a year's stint overseas. And I can probably count on one hand the number of times in that 21 years that I've had a person from the church that not a person who was in pastoral staff or ministry or was some type of leadership in the church, but just a, an average, if you want to call it, that church member. I've probably count on one hand in 21 years that I've had somebody come to me and say, Pastor, I am really broken up over the fact that we're not seeing more people saved. I am really broken up over the fact that we don't have more baptisms. 
I, my heart hurts, Pastor, that we don't have more people engaged in Sunday school or discipleship groups or small groups or whatever the case may be. But I don't have enough hands to tell you how many times I've heard the music's too loud or the music's too soft or they don't play enough hymns or they don't play enough praise choruses or people are dressing too casual or people are not dressing casual enough or people need to dress up more. I don't have enough hands on my body to talk about all the conversations I've had in 21 plus years that are things that don't have anything to do with the spiritual faith and conversion of people. That have more to do with our own personal comfort and preference. That's how I can say that the church is deficient in its spiritual maturity. Because the things that ought to be breaking our hearts, the things that should be keeping us up at night, are not usually the things that are doing so. And evidently, this is not a new issue because the writer of Hebrews is dealing with these Jewish Christians in the same way. That they're stuck, they're in a rut. That they should have progressed on to a, a deeper spiritual maturity in their life, but they haven't. And we'll look at some of the reasons why here in just a moment. I want you to see in chapter 5, verse 11. I want us to hear from chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3, the challenge for today from God. Follow along with me, if you will. He writes, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles or of the word of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This we will do if God permits. I, I, I want to say one more thing before we get into it. I understand how challenging and how difficult these type of scriptures can be because what these type of scriptures demand of us is introspection, that we look within our lives and more importantly, really, that we ask the Holy Spirit to look within our lives and to say, are you really where you think you are? And introspection is not something that we do well as human beings. A lot of you know that I've had various opportunities in the past uh, in my life to, to do different types of athletic coaching. And it, it, I very rarely had an athlete come to me and say, Coach, can you tell me what my weaknesses are? But I had lots of them come to me and tell me what their strengths were. And oftentimes it was their weaknesses that were keeping them from getting more playing time. But they didn't want to hear that. And unfortunately in our society, their parents didn't want to hear it either. My son sits out in the driveway and makes 20 free throws in a row. Why isn't he playing more? Well, he can't guard, he can't go left, 
and he can't rebound. Well, I don't want to hear that about my son. We don't want to hear that we're lacking, and I understand that. But this is a place in our life where we can't get it wrong. We can't try to live as spiritual adults if we're still drinking milk. And we can't stay on milk forever. And the writer of Hebrews is challenging his people and us today with this. The first issue here found in verses five, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 through 15, or 14, is that they are loitering. They are spiritually loitering. To loiter is to delay an activity. Uh, It's to remain in one place without any real purpose. You know, uh, when when people get uh, cited for loitering in a public place, it's because they're just kind of hanging around, right? They they don't have any reason to be there. They can't say they have a purpose to be there. And so they get get a ticket sometimes or get asked to move. They're just kind of staying in one place. And he says about this spiritual loitering there in verse 11, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain. About what? Well, most likely about the preceding two verses where he began to talk about how Christ was the source of eternal salvation being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He says, we have a lot to say about that, that mysterious Melchizedek, this mysterious Old Testament figure that Christ was made a priest after his order, not after the order of Aaron, not after the order of what you might think, but after the order of Melchizedek. We've got a lot to say, but he says it's hard. It's hard to do. Now, I do think what's interesting is, if we'll, we'll get here in a couple of weeks, but when you get to chapter 7, he spends a whole chapter on Melchizedek. So on one hand, he says, this is really difficult to do because of your spiritual condition, but I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) And I think that's important, right? We we can't just continually go back and go back and go back and, and try to just push people along. Sometimes we have to move forward and do our best to bring them along with us. But we can't just stay in that rut. But he gives them two primary reasons why this is hard to explain. One, he says, you have become dull of hearing. Dull being a word that means lazy or sluggish. Hearing being a word that they are hearing, they're listening, but they are not hearing or listening with understanding. And not only that, they're not hearing with understanding, but then acting accordingly. This is the way we talk to our children, our grandchildren, right? Do you hear me? And then what do we follow that up with? Do you understand? Gabriel heard that three times today before we ever got out of the house. Because we say to our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, people that we're in charge of, did you hear what I said and do you understand that if you do or don't do what I said, there's a consequence? We want them to act accordingly, right? And so he says, you have become dull of hearing. You've become lazy, you've become sluggish. You listen, but you don't understand it. Or maybe you listen and you understand it a little bit, but then you don't act accordingly. And, and just to, to put it to the fine point here, what he's saying is the issue is not with the material and the issue is not with the teacher. The issue is with the receiver. Gosh, how many times have I heard, and maybe you've heard too, well, I'm leaving so-and-so or such-and-such place because I'm just not getting fed. Now, I understand that there's sometimes 
preferences in teaching or sometimes there are places that maybe don't teach as deep or, or a, a Sunday school class or a small group. Maybe, that, But I would say that's a very small percentage where that's actually the case, where nobody's getting fed at all. If you pull up to a buffet and you walk away hungry, that's on you. And God's word, even when it's not taught great, even when it's not taught the way you'd like it to be taught, God's word is a buffet. It is there for you and I to take and devour and digest and then work accordingly in our lives, practice accordingly in our lives. But he says to them, and I would say to many in the church today in America, they've become dull of hearing. But look at what he says there at the, at the end of verse 12. You have become dull of hearing. The understanding here is that they once weren't this way. And perhaps you have maybe even the same testimony that I have or that others have, that you can remember a time when you first came to faith in the Lord, and man, it was 100 miles an hour all day, every day. Couldn't get enough of your Bible reading, couldn't get enough of being involved in church, couldn't get enough of getting into a, a small group or somewhere else or asking somebody to disciple you or being a part of a small discipleship group, couldn't get enough of it. And then our favorite phrase, isn't it? Life happens. Well, I got a new job and it, it requires me to work a whole lot. Oh, we had kids or the kids are getting bigger. Oh, well, you know, I just, finances are tough these days. So if I don't work 70 hours a week, we're, we're struggling. Life happens, right? Life was happening for these Jewish Christians. Their life happens was looking like this, persecution, being culturally and socially ostracized from their communities for walking away from their Jewish faith and embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Life was happening for them as well, and because life was happening, they had become this way. And he's cautioned them all through this letter. Chapter 2, he's talked about that drifting, being careful not to drift. And in chapter 3, it's been exhortations about holding on to or holding with confidence and taking care and exhorting one another and just a general warning against hardening their hearts. He's been leading up to this. Chapter 5, verse 11 and following doesn't just come out of the blue. He's been laying the, the groundwork for it the whole time. And he's just bringing it home. I have much to say to you about Jesus and this Melchizedek figure, but it's hard. It's hard because you are dull of hearing. He also gives them a second reason there. In verse 12, he continues, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. There are some scholars who believe that at this point in this Jewish Christian community that many may have been Christians for 20 to 30 years, depending on the date of the letter. And he says to them, you ought to be teachers by now. That seems a little weird if you know James 3 where James says, not many of you should aspire to be teachers. So it seems like the Bible's kind of contradictory there. But understand, James' context and his culture that he's writing to, he's really speaking more in James 3 of sort of the position of teacher. 
You shouldn't aspire to want to lead the church or lead your church group because there's going to be harsher judgment for those who do so. It's a warning to teaching and preaching incorrectly or without preparation or without the power and the presence of the Spirit. Here, the writer of Hebrews is not speaking so much to this issue of position, but just to the issue of discipleship within their community. You ought to be teachers by now, meaning you ought to be able to explain to one another if somebody is lacking the basics, the fundamentals. Doesn't mean you have to know all four eschatological viewpoints on the millennium, but you ought to be able to explain the gospel. You ought to be able to talk to one another about those things. And he says, you ought to be this way, but you need milk, not solid food. You still need milk, he says, not the solid food of this teaching. It's stuff like this that raises the question for us, right? Well, whose job or whose responsibility is it to see people go into spiritual maturity? Unfortunately, I think in our modern day and time, most of the time we answer that with, well, it's the pastor's job or it's the the youth pastor or the youth team's job to make my youth that way or or the children's ministry to do that or the, the couple that's leading the married couples group, they're responsible for my marriage, the Sunday school teacher is responsible. And, and all those things are given within the church, according to Paul in Ephesians 4, to equip the church, to equip the church for the work of ministry. We're not responsible for your maturity. We're responsible to equip you in all of these settings, in all these ways, for the work of maturity and for the work of ministry in the church. But we so often look at it as it's somebody else's responsibility, or it's a program's responsibility. Understand this. I got no issue with programs. I got no issue with various discipleship methods. I got no issue with any of it. But programs don't produce maturity. Programs by themselves don't grow us. It takes people being responsible to equip, and then it takes those who are being equipped to hear it, to not be lazy, to not be dull, to not be sluggish, to hear it, and then to act accordingly in their lives. And just having a program isn't it. There has to be a desire, both of those who are equipping and of those who are being equipped. And so he says to them, you you need milk, not solid food. Milk's not bad, right? In, in 1 Peter 2, Peter is exhorting his readers. He says, crave the spiritual milk. Milk's not a bad thing. I'm 52, and the greatest thing I like when I have hot, warm chocolate chip cookies or brownies is a good, cold glass of milk. But it would be a problem if I was 52 and milk was all I ever had. If I was 52 and trying to continue to my, my body and the energy that I need and, and what I need to get through a day and to, to be the husband and the father I need to be and the pastor I need to be and, and fulfill all the roles of my life, for me just to do nothing else but milk would be an issue. And that's exactly what he says here in verse 13. You need milk, not solid food, because everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. 
Unskilled in the word of righteousness likely uh, is a phrase that just kind of refers to a comprehensive understanding of the righteousness of God, that we're made righteous through our union with Jesus Christ, that our righteousness is not something that we uh, ascribe to on our own, but it's given to us through our faith in Christ, that that righteousness is then to be played out and displayed out and lived out in our lives. I think that's why he follows it up there in verse 14. Look at how he makes the comparison. The person who lives on milk is unskilled in that word of righteousness, but solid food, verse 14, is for the mature who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He says there's a difference between these two. And you can't live on milk. Just as a physical human body can't just live on milk, so the spiritual Maturing Christian can't just live on milk. Now, we understand sometimes the hesitancy to leave the milk is this, don't we? Well, if I know more, then I'm going to be asked to do more. If I crave more, if I, if I seek deeper teaching and deep understanding, then that's going to mean more is required of me. Jesus himself says that several places in the Gospels, essentially. To whom little has been given, little is to be expected. To whom much has been given, much is to be expected. And so sometimes the, the battle within us is this, well, if I could just stay back here in this easy-peasy little circle, I'm still saved, I'm still going to heaven, that way, nobody really expects a lot out of me. But understand this, staying in the circle, yes, you're still saved, and yes, you're still going to heaven, and yes, Jesus has still done all he's done for you, but it means that not only are you missing out, but people around you are missing out on blessings and graces of God because we don't mature. We don't step forward. We don't let God do what he wants to do in our lives we want to stay on milk. And so consequently, the challenge from the author then begins in chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Leaving it doesn't mean we forget it. Leaving it doesn't mean we don't still use it or utilize it or refer back to it. But leaving it means that we don't stay there. We begin to have the natural progression of spiritual maturity. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, you use the basics to go on to better things. When I first began to learn the game of golf as a child, my dad gave me the basics. Here's how you do your arms. Here's how you do your legs. Here's the balance. Here are these things. He didn't set, to set, set me up on the golf range and say, now what I want you to do is I want you to hit a high fade 230 yards against the wind and control it. He said, just get yourself ready and hit it. But he, he gave me those basics so that later on in life, when I did get, get better at the game, I could do things. I could work the ball one way or another. I, could, I had that ability to, to manage different conditions, but I had to have the basics first. So I don't leave the basics. They stay with me, but I move on in that. It's the same way here. Leave and go on. Leave and go on to maturity. Don't just stay where it's easy. Don't just stay where you can just have all the answers. Leave and go on. And he uses three things here in these following verses. They're called couplets to describe these basic principles or these foundational truths. Now, here's where it gets a little, little tough in this passage. 
scholars are pretty much split, 50-50. Some believe that these six teachings that we're going to look at here in just a moment were teachings that um, when Jews became Christians, that these are six teachings that uh, sort of were fun, uh, fundamental or foundational teachings that they had to ascribe to, to say or to prove that they had belonged or had made the step of faith to Jesus. There are others who believe, and this is the camp that I, I lie in, there are others who believe that because of the context of this whole letter, that the context of this whole letter is him writing to the Jewish Christians saying, don't go back to the way things used to be, but move forward in Christ. That these six things are things that are representative of the Old Testament or old Jewish beliefs. And I think that's where this truth lies. And so that's the direction I'm teaching from today. So he says, let's go on to maturity. Look at verse 1, first, th- first couplet. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Dead works, of course, can refer to sin in general. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So dead works can refer to just moving away from dead works and moving away from our sin. But I think here again, contextually, it's referring to the dead works of the Old Testament sacrificial system and how that coupled with faith in God. I've I've mentioned it several times through this this issue. Uh, the, The Old Testament sacrificial system were these dead works of animal sacrifice that never provided permanent forgiveness they basically provided temporary forgiveness one year's worth until the next day of atonement and essentially the faith in God was kind of contingent upon those two days making it from one to another he says leave that leave this repentance by dead works and embrace this repentance of turning away from sin and turning to Christ, the ultimate issue of faith in God. He then says this next couplet, leaving away or moving from the instruction of, about washings, verse 2, and the laying on of hands. Some of your translations say baptisms, and it's, it's a word that can be translated washing or baptisms. But given the very high view in the New Testament of believers' baptism, that it is something that we are called to do as reference to our faith, I, I don't believe he's wanting them to move on from believer's baptism. I think, again, in the context of the letter, he's saying move on from the Jewish tradition, the Jew- Jewish ceremonial rituals of washings or of baptisms. Um, in, in Mark chapter 7, a couple weeks ago on Sunday nights, we were looking at that passage where the Pharisees were uh, coming against Jesus and his disciples. Why don't your disciples wash their hands? It wasn't a hygiene issue. It was a cleanliness, uncleanliness issue. And Mark goes on to explain in that, that not only do they wash their hands, but they wash the, the, cup or, the, the cups and the pots and the cup, copper kettles and all these things in a, in a way to not be clean or a way to not be unclean. We know that that followed and that expanded all the way up through Jesus' times that they would go through these ceremonial washings. They, they would also go through these ceremonial laying on of hands. Oftentimes in that Old Testament sacrificial system, if you brought an animal for the priest to sacrifice on your behalf, you laid your hands on that animal, in a sense, moving your sin from yourself to that animal. 
It's what the high priest did on the Day of Atonement when he designated the scapegoat and took the blood of the sacrifice and wiped it all over the scapegoat and then sent it out into the wilderness to symbolize the removal of sin from the people of Israel. It's this that the author's saying. Move away from this ceremonial cleanliness and uncleanliness. Move away from this idea of laying hands and transferring sin to an animal and move to Jesus Christ who has made you clean by his blood. Lay your hands on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of the finisher of your faith. Move away from these things and move towards these things. And then thirdly, he says there in verse 2, the final couplet, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. Resurrection of the dead and, and eternal judgment are ideas that are existing in the Old Testament and the old Jewish literature, but they hadn't been fully formed yet. And honestly, what really had been fully formed in the Jewish community was not so much what might happen past this earth, but what would happen on this earth. For you will recall how many times did the disciples say to Jesus, when are you going to restore Israel? Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he is buried, he resurrects, they're hanging out with him in Acts, and they still don't get it. Now, Jesus, now are you going to restore us to earthly prominence? And so their idea of resurrection and judgment was that there was going to be a general resurrection, but that the reality of it was that God was going to do something through the Messiah to restore them to earthly prominence. But now through the gospel, this takes on new meaning. And so he says, leave that idea of resurrection and judgment and understand the resurrection and judgment that now come from Christ. That the judgment is this, that John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? But John 3.18, whoever believes is not condemned and whoever does not believe is condemned already. We're not waiting on judgment. People that have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus are already judged needlessly because there is a savior who has come and done everything that is necessary for their salvation there's a savior who has come and done everything necessary not only for their salvation but for you and my and me who are in Christ necessary for our sanctification for our growing up into spiritual maturity he has accomplished it all and that's really where I believe this, this challenge is being placed to these immature Christians here. Leave this repentance that you used to know. Leave these ceremonial practices that you used to know. Leave these earthly hopes and dreams and how Jesus was going to, to resurrect Israel to its greatness on this earth. Leave all that and trade all that in for him. Move in spiritual maturity to becoming more like him because he has provided all of this. And it is there for the taking. It is there for the taking. No, no believer in Christ can ever truthfully say, well, God doesn't want me to mature. No believer in Christ can ever truthfully say, well, I just don't know how to mature, or I just don't have the abilities to, to mature. Because the very presence of God is living within us. The very indwelling Holy Spirit of God has taken residence in every person's life who has by faith and trust received the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. 
Now, to the Spirit, we may be dull of hearing. And to the Spirit, we may be hearing but not understanding or hearing and understanding but not acting. But it is not truthful to say He does not want us to mature and it is not truthful to say that we can't. And the closes up in chapter 6, verse 3. He said, this we will do if God permits. The way it words in the English, it kind of makes it seem like God might go, well, maybe I'll let you and maybe I won't. It's not really the issue here. The issue here is that God recognizes, as we saw back in chapters 3 and chapter 4, when they talked about the rebellion of old, right? He recognizes that there'll be some people that'll say, no, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to believe by faith. I'm not going to put my faith and trust in Jesus. It's old. It's hokey. It's religion. I'm not going to do it. And to those who had unbelief, as we talked about in chapters 3 and 4, God said, they'll never enter my rest. And to the man, woman, boy, and girl, whoever you may be, wherever you may be, that says, no, mm-mm, it's religion, it's hokey, it's been disproven, there's too many, too many argumentative other religions around it, no, mm-mm, it's not going to do it. God says to them, by their own choice, you will not enter my rest. But God does permit to those who have placed faith and trust in Jesus the ability to leave and move on. To be able to leave and be secure in. We, we sang it earlier, right? Standing on the promises. And we do stand on the promises. But somehow, simultaneously, we, we stand and we walk on the promises. And we mature. And we grow. And we come, become who it is that he wants us to be. Now, it, this passage is going to couple with a passage next week where the author is going to seem to say that people who've rejected God in this way can't be saved again. And I thought about trying to tackle all of it in one week, and it was just too big to, to do so. But we'll deal with that next week. But I want you to hear clearly today. If you are here and you are in Christ, united with him through faith, through grace, through the power of the dwelling Holy Spirit, it is necessary for me and for you to repeatedly ask ourselves, are we the same today as we were a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Are we growing? Are we maturing? And see, sometimes we ask that of ourselves, and it's kind of our version of Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Right? We do a little introspection. We go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, God, I got that. That's that, that's that spot in my life that, that I struck. But you know, at least I'm not as bad as they are. <laughs> that's not the kind of introspection that God's asking for. Am I, am I the same I was 10 years ago? Am I the same I was last week? Am I maturing? Are the things that bother me and take hold of my life things that are critical to the kingdom and to the salvation message? Or are they things that are second and third and fourth level things that really have more to do with preference and custom and tradition than they do anything else? Where, where should I be a teacher to someone? Say, I don't, I don't think I should be a preacher. Okay, that's fine. But is there no one in your life that you can disciple? 
Is there no one in your life that you can take the elementary basics and truths of the gospel with and begin to explain them in such a way and live them out in such a way that they get called to Jesus? This is not about us gathering here for an hour and walking out of here feeling good about ourselves and going, yes, I'm saved. All right, till next week. This is about us maturing and growing and asking the tough questions and letting the Spirit deal with the tough issues and areas of our lives so that we can leave and go on. Are you spiritually maturing in Christ? We need it, folks. We need it. If, you, if you're not spiritually maturing, again, it doesn't mean that you've, you're not saved. But I promise you, somebody somewhere is missing out in your life if we are not leaving and pressing on to maturity in Christ. For his name and for his glory and for his kingdom, it is worth it. So that we can be concerned about the things we need to be concerned about and we can see God do what he wants to do in people's lives. Your maturity, my maturity is a part of that. May we leave and go on. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.